is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a segment by Jesse. And you never know what you're going to get when Jesse does it. And this one's just called More Cowbell. We're high up in the Swiss Alps, and that sound that you're hearing is a herd of cows wearing cowbells. The cowbell was originally intended to make livestock easier to locate if they wandered off. Different bells have different specific sounds to identify important characteristics of the animal, such as age, sex, and specific herd identification. It is difficult to pinpoint when exactly the use of cowbells began, but the earliest examples of truly recognizable cowbells date back to the Iron Age. Just as soon as they were made, cowbells were used for music in sub-Saharan Africa. Although cowbells first appeared in American hillbilly music in the 1920s, they've also been used as an instrument in more recent popular music. The intro and ending to the 1958 track Heartbeat by the American artist Buddy Holly, a USA minor hit which reached number 82 in the Billboard Hot 100, is quite possibly the first use of the cowbell in pop music. Heartbeat, why do you miss my baby kisses me Even Jimi Hendrix used a little cowbell in Stone Free And who could forget the cowbell in Lowrider? God, this is really a good song. All my friends know the Lowrider. The Lowrider is a little higher. But arguably, the most famous cowbell of them all can be found through the entire track of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. Released as a single, it was their biggest hit, charting at number 12 in 1976. Now, you probably know where I'm heading with this. To the pinnacle of cowbell fame in modern history. On April 8th of 2000, the comedy sketch known as More Cowbell aired on Saturday Night Live featuring Will Ferrell and Christopher Walken. After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with fame producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling. Um, Bruce, could you come in here for a second, please? That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> this is one of the best SNL sketches of all time. Will Ferrell's acting was so over the top 
that Christopher Walken, Jimmy Fallon, Horatio Sands, and Chris Kattan were all trying desperately to hide their laughter on stage with very little success. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. We asked Blue Oyster Cult's drummer, Albert Bouchard, who is now a music teacher in New York City, how the cowbell made it into Don't Fear the Reaper. Ironically, it was similar to what happened in the skit, okay? It was, we had put a whole bunch of uh, overdubs on the, on the song, and one of them was um, uh, Randy Brecker. Put a, the, he put a flugelhorn part on it, or a trumpet or something, in the, in the middle part, the... That part. So, uh, and we didn't like it. Nobody, nobody in the group liked it, you know. And so, uh, erase that track. So I said, "Hey, I want to do, I want to do a triangle in that part. That's what I want. I really, I hear a triangle in my head." And they're like, and the the uh, one of the producers. There was three. There was Sandy Perlman, Murray Krugman, and David Lucas. David Lucas was a jingle producer, and he produced. Uh, a lot of AT&T, reach out, reach out and touch someone, or uh, it's the Pepsi generation. I don't know if you, you're too young. But anyway, these were big uh, uh, ads back, and uh, he was a madman. So uh, he said, uh, okay, you can put the triangle on it, but try a cowbell. I just want to hear a cowbell. And I said, why? You think that, it, is the tempo not steady enough? And he goes, no, don't. The tempo is fine. It's, I just want to hear that sound. I said, okay. So I play it, and I'm like, nah, it's not working. And he's like, oh, well, put some tape around it. So I put some tape around it. And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah, that's it. I said, I don't know. Let me try a, beat, a beater. So I used like a timpani mallet. And, and everybody's like, yes, that's it. That's it. So it's funny that, uh, you know, that Will Ferrell, because he wrote the skit, and it's funny that he even noticed it because it was mixed very low. You don't even really notice it in the track, you know. But the last time I checked, we don't have a whole lot of songs that feature the cowbell. I gotta have more cowbell, baby. More Cowbell has its own Wikipedia page, remixes, tributes, and endless reenactments. It also has its very own app. I could have used a little more cowbell. If you go to Amazon right now, you can actually find cowbells with more cowbell printed on them. There's more cowbell shirts. Stickers, magnets, posters, beer cozies, coffee cups, hoodies, infant clothing, license plate frames, cell phone covers, pet clothing, wall murals, keychains, tote bags, cake decorations, mouse pads. I even found a more cowbell frisbee. And that's just on Amazon. Want some women's underwear for your wife with more cowbell printed on it? More cowbell! They've got that too. Do you want an SNL Christopher Walken more cowbell duvet cover? Those are available too. And I don't even know what a duvet is. More cowbell pillows. More cowbell clocks. You get the picture. This humble little instrument has made quite an impact on American culture. Pretty impressive for a piece of metal that was originally intended to help keep track of livestock. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell.
And we continue here with Our American Stories. And today, we have our Better Health at Lower Cost series brought to us by the Stetson Family Office. And Faith brings us the story. What would you say if you found out exercising made you smarter? Well, it does. And by hearing the story of Naperville Central High School, we'll find out how. Paul Zentarski was the phys ed department chair at Naperville for 26 years and a PE teacher for 40. He decided to do a little experiment. Working alongside other great minds, they started the Learning Readiness Program, which made them do physical education a little differently. Here's Paul Zentarski. We had a, a class that we called Learning Readiness PE, And all of our students take daily PE all four years of high school, which is unusual in the country, unfortunately. And all we did was put put students who were struggling in a class that was like a, a class designed to help them get better. So we had what was called a reading intervention class. And in math, we put them in introduction to algebra because they weren't ready as ninth graders to take algebra. And we just put them in a fairly intense phys ed class prior to to attending those academic classes. Naperville Central High School has been utilizing heart rate monitors during PE in order to ensure students are working in their targeted heart rate zones and maximizing the benefits of PE. Since then, major strides have been made by the school and district with the ultimate goal of running a PE program that truly benefits their students' overall health, wellness, and learning readiness. So what was happening? We had done a, um, what we called a data retreat at our school. And we tried to identify what could we say about the kids who were struggling in our school system. And for us in our particular high school, we identified the low readers as being the ones who struggled. If you struggle with reading, then you're gonna struggle in school. So we created an intervention called literacy. And um, that was designed to improve reading abilities. So every day they went to the class, they did 20 minutes of sustained silent reading. If you want to be a good reader, you have to practice at it. But you have to practice at what they call the decile reading level. Not So it doesn't do any good to read comic books, for example. They have to read, you know, read books that are at their, at their ability level. And um, then they were given test-taking techniques and organization techniques, and, and they learned how to, how to study better. And we found some success with it. But in our eight-period day, our ninth graders who took that class didn't get an opportunity to take an elective. They had their other five core subjects, um, English, math, social studies, uh, foreign language, and science. They had physical education in their schedule and they also had a full period of lunch well their literacy class took up their elective so we had some parents who complained said we saw the benefit for our students but our students didn't get a chance to take an elective so my principal came to me and said would you consider running a zero hour PE class and uh, for those kids involved in the um, in the reading program and I said yes I would do that, but my caveat would be that I want then the first period of the day to be uh, the literacy class. And he said, we can schedule it that way. 
So people involved, the reading teachers involved in the program said, we have to collect data to see if it's working, because if it isn't working, I'll go back to the neuroscientists. And by this time, Dr. Reddy had come to visit our program. And so, you know, we developed a relationship with him. And I said, if it's not working, we'll go back to neuroscientists and see how we can tweak it. Well, when we collected data using a nationwide reading test, at the time we used the Nelson Denny reading test, the students who were in the PE class prior to, um, prior to the, the class improved a half a year more in a semester than the students who were just getting off the bus and going to first period literacy. Naperville began to gain the interest of psychiatrists and doctors all around the country. Here's Dr. John Rady, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. I uh, became aware of a school in Naperville, Illinois, uh, in about 2002, when they were on Frontline, the PBS show, uh, because we were beginning to really worry about the obesity crisis in adults and in children. They uh, just had canvassed their student population and found that of the 19,000 kids in their school district, uh, only 3% of them were overweight, whereas the national average was 33%. This was remarkable, but even more remarkable, and especially for me, was that uh, a year or two before uh, this report came out, they had 99% of their kids had taken the TIMS test, the International Science and Math test, which every country takes every three years. And they found that uh, they could take it as a country. Uh, the U.S. usually comes in 19th or 20th. I think that's a run where they scored this past time that they took it. And it's to, it, as I say, it's to evaluate where countries stack up in terms of science and math education. Well, they took it and uh, they came in number one in the world in science and number six in math. This got me on an airplane to go to explore what the heck was happening in Naperville. So this became a life changer for me, as I say, because I said, this is amazing that we could change the whole education system, the whole uh, effect on uh, students as they uh, go through school by really focusing uh, for 45 minutes a day on fitness. How did this all get started? We started the program in, in 2005, and then I retired in 2010. So from 2005 through 2011, we found we found the benefit. We kept data all the way through, um, and then at, you know after I retired, then they stopped collecting data because there wasn't anybody pushing for it anymore. And um, so for you know for me. Uh, I started to learn the benefits of of, uh, of exercise and fitness and how it affected uh, the brain. I got a chance to work with another neuroscientist, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Chuck Hillman. And at the time, he was at the University of Illinois. He's now at Northeastern uh, University in Boston. And uh, he had done brain scans on, on kids. And he was working with kids. And if you 
If you do an internet search, uh, Chuck Hillman brain scans, you'll see a two-headed slide. Um, and each one of those scans represents a composite of 20 students. And on the left-hand side, it's students sitting down a test, taking a test, and prior to taking the test, they sat quietly. On the right-hand side, it's the same students taking the same test, only they proceeded with just a 20-minute walk, and you see more brain activity. The brain is all lit up. And so when I retired, then I became what I called an educational consultant, and that's what I do. I get, I get asked at times to go and visit districts or, or make presentations at different locations, sometimes parents' groups, sometimes a school district. We as phys ed teachers never had this in our training and, and still to this day, I think the, the kids coming out as phys ed teachers don't understand the benefit they bring to the learning process. And you've been listening to a hell of a story from Naperville, Illinois. And my goodness, only 3% of an entire student population were overweight. And we know what we're looking at down the road, folks, in terms of diabetes in terms of all the problems that being obese will cause as it relates to health down the road. And here's a school system, a single school system, using, well, some, it seems, simple methodologies and data-driven, too, to drive spectacular results, enough to get a Harvard Medical School psychiatrist staff member to fly into small-town America to figure out what the heck is going on. And when we come back, more of this terrific story, and as always... Our Better Health at Lower Cost series is brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. By the way, take, out, take a listen to our, our hour on the life of Dr. Ken Cooper, who is a great NASA scientist, invented modern-day aerobics, and runs one of the great clinics in America. He happens to be my doctor. I'm lucky. And, uh, well, just take a listen to that story. And, again, that one was brought to us by the Stetson Family Office as well. When we come back, more of this remarkable story the story of Naperville when we continue here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and return to the story of Naperville Central High School. The school has been deemed both the smartest and the fittest in the country. And we've been listening to their former phys ed department chair, Paul Zantarski, and Harvard medical psychiatrist, John Rady. We left off with Paul talking about the importance of P.E. Let's return to faith. We all know that P.E. doesn't always serve its purpose. It's become less important and not so much about teaching, but about playing games. Phys ed teachers need to do things the correct way. Uh, At the elementary level, uh, phys ed teachers are using the best, the next best game, as I call it, rather than teaching movement patterns and and, uh, proper body positions and things like that, which is important. We have forgotten as, as phys ed teachers that we teach in a place called a gymnasium 
And that's where we taught gymnastics. And a lot of teachers at the elementary level don't teach gymnastics because they're not comfortable doing that anymore. And that's, that's unfortunate. And the public um, doesn't appreciate what we do because you know, they see us playing kickball outside with the kids all the time. Well, kickball is fine on a one or two day basis in a, in a school year, just, you know, just for fun and breaking it up. But, you know, if a, if a student hasn't learned how to place that foot properly and kick properly and, and run properly and, you know, those kinds of things, uh, it, it's no good to just be playing games. And games are good for those advanced movements, don't get me wrong, but at the same time, you have to teach the basics first. So sports skills in the phys ed world is not as important anymore, and so we need to go back to teaching about health and wellness and nutrition and sleep and fitness and, and teach people the, the fitness concepts. We now know that about above the age of 26, about 5% of the adult population uses team sports to stay active. So we need to teach things like, you know, yoga and Pilates and weightlifting and cardiovascular exercise and training heart rate zones and, and things like that so that people can stay healthy for a lifetime. Our, you know, our economy is going to be crushed by the cost of health care. I mean, I go to schools now and I see fifth graders who are 250 pounds sometimes and, and already have type two diabetes in fifth grade. And they're just going to be a drain on society. They're never going to be a successful citizen. Um, once you have diabetes, it's like a uh, like a slot machine for a drug company. If you have diabetes, you're probably going to have depression. You're probably going to have high cholesterol. You know, you're probably going to have heart disease. So, so it's one more pill after another after another that's that's uh, di or prescribed for you because of, of your illnesses. And that's what's sad. Because people don't know how to exercise or have good physical education, going to the gym doesn't make much of a difference. Uh, I see guys and they want to do these bicep curls, bicep curls. And, and I want to say to them, well, the only thing you're going to do is lift a 12-ounce can of beer to your lips when you bend your arms. You know, how much lifting are you going to do? But again, everybody wants, all these guys want big biceps. And it's the fault of us phys ed teachers because we didn't do things right years ago and we're still not doing things right unfortunately but what does this all mean for the rest of us why is teaching physical education so important this isn't just about good grades is it dr john rady wrote the book spark in 2013 which discusses the mind-body connection and how aerobic exercise physically remodels our brains for peak performance one of the things that is, as I, I emphasize is that there is this tremendous uptick in research um, by schools all over the world, uh, who medical schools, schools of uh, kinesiology, psychology, uh, biology, uh, looking at the incredible effects of, of physical exercise on our brains. And it stands to reason as when we move, when we exercise, we are using more brain cells than in any other human activity. We are, since our brains were constructed, 
to make us the best movers. So much of our brain is used. And when we do that, we make our brains tougher. We make our brains work better, but we make them stronger. So we think of the brain as a muscle. So the more we use it, the stronger it becomes and the better it works for us. The benefits of exercise are innumerable. It's used as a treatment for depression, anxiety, weight loss, and sharpening of the brain. Our biggest problem is that people know that exercise is good for you, but still don't do it. We're constructed. If you could take to make us the best movers of exercise and put it in a pill, you would be the most powerful person in the world. So much of our brain is used. And when we do that, we... The problem is, is... Make our brain... And I keep telling people this. Exercise is work. And so we we tend not to want to... You know, our bodies tend not to work, even though that's how our brains developed as our ancestors moved and hunted and, and we're constantly on the move and that's how our brains, you know, evolves. And yet we don't know that. And the sad part is tougher. We make our brains work. Most school administrators don't understand how better brain functions. So they think that they spend, if a student spends more time in a class, they're going, they're going to learn better. So what we what we see around the country is they're dropping courses like physical education and music and art for, to help science, technology, engineering, and math uh, that everybody's pushing. And yet, uh, if the brain isn't prepared to learn through movement, it's you know sitting in a desk isn't going to isn't going to help the matter. It's better to start later than never. People are always worried about hurting themselves. And yes, you have to do movement carefully and thoughtfully and in balance and train for moving. Um, But it's better to uh, wear out than to rust because so much of us, so many of us um, out there are rusting away from disuse, not only our muscles, and our joints, but this has an impact on our brain rusting. And this is what we see with the, the cognitive uh, decline that we're fighting and the onset of Alzheimer's disease. How will this all affect us in the long run? We'll close with Paul Zintarski. We don't want to burden our children with being, being of poor health but that happens so many times. I mean, you know, I have friends that are in nursing homes and I go to, you know, go to visit nursing homes and you just see all these people in wheelchairs sitting in, in hallways, you know, with this uh, terrible look in their eyes, <laughs> like there's no life and, and, you know, just kind of waiting for the death bell to ring and it, it's terrible, right? Not, we have not learned how to live longer well. That's, that's the difference. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Faith, and learning to live longer well. That was, again, Paul Zentarski, 
and the work he did at Naperville Central High School in Illinois. My goodness, 3% or overweight in the entire school. That's almost not believable. I love what Harvard medical psychiatrist John Rady said towards the end there. Better to wear out than to rust. Many of us are wearing out from disuse, and not just our joints, but our brains. And of course, all this exercise can help prevent, well, things like early onset of Alzheimer's. And great work as always by Faith, great storytelling. And thanks again to Paul Zantarski and John Rady, their stories in the quest for better health at lower cost. And all of this brought to us by the great folks at the Stetson Family Office. And thanks to Chuck Stetson for his tirelessness in pursuing this subject and all of the work he and his staff and team put into this. Their stories, all of them, here on Our American Stories. stories and you're listening to mark cohen's classic walking in memphis and it may be one of the two best songs ever written about a trip to graceland and the best one ever written we're about to get into and dig into in our story of the song segment and it's one of our favorites here on our american stories and this is the story of graceland as told by writer paul simon And Graceland is the title song of the album Graceland, released in 1986 by Simon. The song features vocals by the Everly Brothers. The lyrics deal with a singer's thoughts during a road trip to Graceland after the failure of his marriage. The song helped Simon win the 1988 Grammy Award for Record of the Year. And now, in his own words, on the creation of the song, here's Paul Simon. The Graceland story is a very uh, interesting story in that it's a very good example of how a collaboration works, even when you're not aware of it occurring. The track is one of the early tracks because I only did five tracks in South Africa. On uh, the sessions that I did with Forere, who was the accordion player, plays on Boy in the Bubble, we did a few other tracks. One of the tracks I said, you know, I, I like only the drums on this track. I don't really want anything else. I don't want the accordion or bass. I just want the drums. And the drums were uh, something like a kind of a traveling rhythm in country music. I'm a big Sun Records fan. and Early 50s, mid 50s Sun Records. You'd hear that drum beat a lot. 
fast Johnny Cash type of rhythm. And somewhere later in the week of recording, when I had, uh, you know, put together a, a rhythm section of Ray Peary and Begidi Kumalo and Isaac Machali as the rhythm section, I said to Ray one day, I like this drum pattern. Take a listen to it and see if it does anything for you. You know, it sounds like a kind of a country thing to me. So he started to play his version of American country, Ray. Uh, he was in the key of E, and then uh, he was playing, uh, you know, like he was, because he's playing electric, but he would, he would be up over here, you know, like... Uh, uh, Drums are going down. Oh, then he went. Which is a relative minor chord to that key. That's interesting that you played a minor chord because all the music that I've been recording in South Africa, with the exception of the Sutu music, it was all three chord major chords. There was never a minor chord. There were times when I would ask Black Mombazo to sing a minor chord. They couldn't sing a minor chord. They just didn't hear it. So he put in this, uh, this minor chord, and I said, that's, that's interesting, why'd you do that? He said, I was just imitating the, the way you write. Well, I said, we'll play this lick over it. Da, do, dee, da, da, do, da, do, da. Ba, do, dee, da, ba, do, dee, da, da, do, dee, da, da. In an overdub. And he did, and it was a really nice, really nice mix. And Begidi was playing. Dun, 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 dun. a beautiful emptiness to it. I think that's part of what makes me think that it's something like Sun Records, you know, when it was just a few instruments and nothing really much except slapback echo and the song. There's also another uh, connection musically that's in there, and that is there's a pedal steel guitar in there, which is, a, of course, a, you know, like a, a country instrument. But it's also a West African instrument, and the guy who played it, uh, his name was Devola Adejapu. He played with uh, King Sonny Ade's band. You know, I wanted to uh, hear what that lick sounded like. Seemed like it would be a very good pedal steel lick. And it was a great pedal steel lick, but it was also a great Ray Peary performance. Oh, 
me, what's interesting is that Ray reaches into his memory for some kind of approximation of what he thinks of as American country. And Begitti plays straight ahead to the African groove. And so the, the two, you know, the two musics find a commonality. And the lyric expresses that. I'm going to Graceland. Don and Phil Everly came in and sang. I always heard that song as a perfect Everly Brothers song. Poor boys and pilgrims with families, and we are going to Graceland. I was down in South Africa in, I think, February, maybe early March, and I think I didn't go down to, uh, to Memphis until maybe May. Brought it home, and I was trying to write to it. I would, um, you know, sing these lines about Graceland. Graceland, because I'm going to get rid of the Graceland part because, I mean, what's Graceland got to do with South Africa or anything like that? So that's got to go. Just a question of, uh, you know, what I'm going to replace it with. But then I couldn't replace it with anything. I was always singing that. And finally I said, I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to go to Graceland. I've never been. Maybe I'm supposed to go on a trip and see what I'm writing about. So I did. And, uh, and then I began to describe the trip, uh, the Mississippi Delta, because I was driving up uh, from uh, Louisiana, uh, where I cut uh, the Zydeco track on Graceland. I was driving from Highway 61. You know, I'm just writing about what the countryside looked like. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. Following the river down the highway Through the cradle of the Civil War I'm going to Graceland, Graceland To Memphis, Tennessee I'm going to Graceland And finally got there to, you know, to Graceland And just, you know, made a tour through Graceland But what's interesting about all of this is that The part of me that had Graceland in my head I think subconsciously was reacting to what I first heard in the drums, which was a kind of Sun Records country blues amalgam. And what Ray was doing was mixing up his oral recollections of what American country was and what kind of chord changes I played. song really is just one sound evoking a response and that eventually became a lyric that evoked instead of being specifically about a South African subject or even a political subject it became a, a traveling song that had to do with the original sound which was the drums and and uh, and Sun Records and Graceland. That's really the secret of world music, is people are able to listen to each other and uh, make associations and play their own music that sounds like it fits into, a, into another culture. And uh, that's, how it, that's how it works, and that's how it worked then, the story of Graceland. Mm-hmm. 
And what a story it is. And by the way, Simon is being humble, exceedingly so. These lyrics, read them one day. They'll break your heart. What he's going through, what his ex-wife was going through, his son. But I've reason to believe will be received in Graceland. Always in the end, Simon's great lyricism, his great musical talent. You've heard it all here, a remarkable story of his song, Paul Simon's very best song, the story of Graceland, here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now our own Carter Andrews brings us a story of an unlikely hero. And the Oscar goes to... Undefeated, T.J. Martin, Dan Lindsay, and Rich Middlemouse. Academy Award-winning documentary, Undefeated. We've got the man here. He is back. Bill Courtney. Bill Courtney. Coach Bill Courtney. Coach Bill Courtney. Bill Courtney joining us this morning. Author of Against the Grain, former coach of Manassas High School football team, profiled in the Oscar-winning documentary, Undefeated. But Bill Courtney's life started far from the stage of an Oscar-winning documentary. I grew up in Memphis. My dad and mom were divorced when I was four. I never really, other than my grandfathers, never really had a consistent father figure in my life. My father figures were my coaches. My mom was a, a loving, caring woman and did the best she could for me. She made some bad choices, was married and divorced five times. My mom's fourth husband shot at me down a hallway with a 38 caliber pistol when I was 17. One of the first real fights I ever got into was with one of my mom's husbands. And as a result, I identify with many kids who are fatherless. I understand that you stick your chest out every day and you carry yourself with a little extra bravado to hide the hurt and pain that manifests itself inside one's psyche as a result of trying to understand as a young man why your father doesn't want to have anything to do with you. I mean, I wasn't an All-American, but I was a pretty good football player, and I can't remember the game or the year, but I scored a touchdown with like six seconds left, and then I kicked the extra point to win the game. Everybody went nuts. Coach was jumping around. And as we're walking off the field, I look up, and all these guys were walking off with their dad's arm around them, carrying their, their son's shoulder pads then their helmet, and I was walking off alone. I was the guy that just won the game. You know, who was there to celebrate with me? Who was proud of me? And, I mean, enough of those experiences make you eventually say, What's wrong with me? What have I done? What, what is my flaw that my own father doesn't want to have any time for me? What, why, 
what have I done? What, what is wrong with me? And you start looking in the mirror and you start noticing blemishes that other people don't see. And you start thinking things about yourself that other people don't recognize, but you're in search for this truth about why you're not valuable enough to have your father's time. So I was raised going to church. And then as an adolescent, I turned my back on all of it. I was so angry and frustrated that I didn't... It's hard to believe in an almighty father when you don't believe in a father at all. And I just wasn't down with it. But to be honest with you, when I graduated high school, the first time I ever saw a miss was when I checked into my dorm room. I didn't have any money to come visit. I got to go there for free, so that's where I went. I had no idea what college was. I didn't even know what a major and a minor was. No idea. None. I uh, was so unprepared for that atmosphere and an atmosphere of a lot of kids running around with their father's credit card wearing a shirt that was more expensive than everything I had in my entire dorm room. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to be because I didn't even know who I was. After graduating from college, Bill became a high school teacher and a coach at Rosemark Academy. And it was here that he first caught a glimpse of a girl named Lisa, the niece of the lunch lady, Susan. In bops Miss Thing, and I'm like, good gracious, you know, what is that? And that thing left, and I asked Susan who that was. She said, that's my niece you don't want to date. And I said, I think I made an error in judgment. So I married her, and I figured I got to keep her around, so I just started having kids. So we had four and four years, and she couldn't get off the hook that way. But the problem was, when you're making 17500 a year, and you have two kids in the crib and one in the oven, ends don't meet. And so here I was, a dissertation away from my doctor in psychology, a coach, a married man with two children and one on the way, making $17,000 a year, and I couldn't do it. So I took the quickest job I could, and that was selling fleets of vehicles to companies. So I did that for a couple years, ended up selling some trucks to a guy who owned a lumber company, and he said, you don't remind me of a car salesman. And I said, well, I don't remind myself of a car salesman, but a guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. He offered me $10,000 a year more than I was making selling cars, and I took the job. And that's how I got in the lumber business. And just like showing up at Ole Miss and not having any idea what in the world I was looking at, I couldn't have told you Red Oak from Poplar. I didn't know a thing about it. And now here I am still thinking I'm going to be a child psychologist one day at 26 years old with two kids, a wife, and a baby expecting selling lumber that I know nothing about. I worked there for five years, um, ended up being vice president of the company, moved the company from $25 million in annual revenue to $120 million in annual revenue. I was 31 years old, now with four kids, making a really good living, but I was worried about being the guy who gets relieved at 45 due to nepotism. I wanted to buy a piece of the company. He wouldn't sell it, so I quit. And I had $17,000, four kids, no cars, because both our cars were company cars, and I started this company out of my... Uh, out of my living room with 17 grand. And you've been listening to Bill Courtney's story. And by the way, the subject of fatherlessness is one we, well, we really drill down on 
And you could hear Bill struggle with this, well, through much of his young life. Why me, I think, is always the question a young man asks or a young lady when their father just abandons them and the hole they have to fill. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Bill Courtney's story, you know some of it if you've seen the documentary. But this is the rest of the story. When we come back, more of Bill Courtney's story here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and Bill Courtney's story. With only $17,000 to his name, this husband and father of four quit his job to start a lumber company called Classic American Hardwood right out of his living room. Let's return to Bill. We opened the doors on September 1st, 2001. I'd borrowed everything I could borrow. I'd hawked my house, sold all my money. We were literally back to eating ramen noodles again and 11 days later the planes flew into the buildings the economy just shut off i mean the whole world was paralyzed so i knew i'd just blown it and was going to be broke and somehow we pieced together enough business to make it through four five six months of that and then things started to turn into normalcy and um i bought a little piece of land and one building on it, which was built in 1889, and uh, went to North Carolina and bought some old, broke-down equipment, literally drug some of it out of the weeds from behind big plants and paid cash for it, brought it back here, put it together, started it working, and started with 12 guys. And uh, it was tenuous. Some people think commitment is, if I tell you I'm going to be somewhere at 10, I show up at 10. Some people think commitment is if, you know, if I'm going to do a good job, I'm going to work my eight hours and be committed. I think of commitment as a a whole different thing. I think the greatest measure of the success of the leader is the actions of the followers. And so if the followers are doing well and the followers are acting right, then I'll show you good leadership. If the followers aren't doing well or acting right, I'll show you crap leadership. And one of these followers was Sam Quinn. Sam was one of my very first employees when I started this place. He was one of 12 that I hired as common labor. And I mean, Sam was almost 40 at the time. And most common labor in the lumber business is it's backbreaking work. It's hard work. I mean, pulling lumber doesn't sound like something so difficult. But trust me, 80,000 board feet of lumber coming at you in an eight-hour day where you get zero break except lunch, and you're pulling 50 to 100-pound boards second after second onto a pack of lumber, it's hard. It's hard for a young man in shape, much less a 40-year-old guy, much less a 40-year-old guy than Sam Quinn was living in a Lighthouse Ministries, which was a homeless shelter, having had 
problems with the law, problems with alcohol addiction and addiction, and who probably didn't eat but a meal a day. He was a Marine. Uh, he started off his life the right way, and he got sideways, and he got caught, um, and he went to work. And after about a week, I noticed this guy just working his rear end off, and I liked him, so I gave him a 50 cent an hour raise, which I didn't have, but I liked his work ethic. It looked like this was a guy who wanted to be part of something and wanted more than just a check. And... One Friday, our tilt hoist broke. Now, a tilt hoist, to your listeners, won't mean anything, but basically, it's a very large, heavy piece of machinery that lifts a pack of lumber up, hoists it in the air, and then tilts it so that layers of lumber can singulate. Board by board by board can come off onto conveyors and chains. So it's how you get a pack of lumber broken down into individual boards in an automated fashion. Uh, Our tilt hoist broke. And it's at the front of the manufacturing line. If you don't have a tilt hoist, you can't do anything else. And it broke like Friday right before quitting time at 320. And it was really messed up. And the work I was going to have to do to it was a week's worth of work. But we had to be running Monday because back then every day mattered. And we had very little cash flow. And I couldn't be without lumber run and sold. Or I would have run out of cash and likely been broke. So... 3.30 happened, and I and a guy had handling maintenance, and one of my salesmen got the tools out and went to work on it. Torches, welding, refabbing, replacing bearings, and just all, all kinds of very heavy industrial work. And at about 5 o'clock, I looked up, and Sam was standing there. And I said, Sam, what are you doing? And he said, I'm here to help you with the tilt hoist. And I said, Sam... I can't pay you more than 40 hours a week, and I sure can't pay you time and a half overtime, and we're going to be here all weekend. I don't even think we'll go home. And I said, I can't pay you, Sam. And he said, it's my company too. I want to help. And I said, Sam, I can't pay you. He said, don't pay me. And I said, Sam, I don't feel right about that. Go home. And he wouldn't. And we saw from Friday morning, Until Monday morning, we saw the sun rise four times before any of us got to go home. Took brief naps, laying on top of machinery and packs of lumber, covered in grease and oil. And we literally got the thing fixed at 6.30 a.m., 30 minutes before shift started at 7. And we ran all day. And after all of that, Sam went to the line and pulled lumber for eight hours before he went home. And I thought, this guy's phenomenal. So I started finding out about his past. Um, found out about his issues, and we went on a basically a two-year run with Sam, called on some friends of mine that were attorneys and called in some favors. And over the course of two years, we got all of his past issues handled. And here we are 15 years later, and Sam is now a manager here making a really, really good salary, married with three children and a homeowner. And to me, that's what commitment leads to. Because Sam saw commitment in us, wanted to commit to be part of what we were, committed in his own life to being part of what we were, then committed his own life to straighten his life out, and then committed his own life to a woman and children, and is now a father in an area where three out of every four children born are born to a fatherless household. 
to me, that is the success of my business. That's what I mean when I say success and excellence is not measured by commas in a bank statement. It's measured in so many more important, meaningful ways. And Sam Quinn is a measure of my success, and his children will be a measure of his, all because he saw something worth committing to. Because of their shared commitment, Classic American Hardwood has grown to $55 million in annual revenue, employs 140 people, and has opened offices in Vietnam and Shanghai. But don't let the successes of Bill, or the trials faced by Sam, fool you about who they truly are. People look at me as a white business owner with a book and an Academy Award and all that, and it takes them about three and a half seconds to sum me up. They assume they know who I am and what I'm about by the tags associated with my subgroup. The truth is, I grew up lower income Memphis and my reality is I, I know what it means to be broke. I know what it means to worry about whether you have dinner or not. In the same respect, Sam Quinn is a 50-something-year-old black dude who uh, had a couple DUIs and had some problems with the law and former addict. And We know what that looks like, right? That demographic's obvious. We've seen it on TV. There's movies about it. There's TV shows about it. We know what he is. Sam Quinn's a father and a husband and a homeowner and a manager at a business who works his ass off every day. Um, but people will sum up Sam the minute they look at him. The act of driving down the interstate in Memphis, I can give you the names of four or five streets like Warford and Hollywood and Mill Branch. Every city has them. But it's, it's the streets when you're driving down the interstate and you go over the overpass, you think, this is not where I want a flat tire, right? Those exits. And there's a segment of society that thinks as they pass over those exits and they peer over the side and they see the disenfranchisement and the hopelessness and, and the loss and the poverty, they think, gosh, somebody ought to do something about that. They think that that sentiment matters. You know, my suggestion is tilt the rearview mirror about 40 degrees and say, I ought to do something about that. I don't think it starts with fancy people with nice suits talking big words on CNN and Fox. I think it starts with um, an army of normal folks just deciding I can help. And that's exactly what Bill was about to do. A normal guy who made the decision that he could help by coaching football at an impoverished, gang-ridden school in inner-city Memphis called Manassas High School. After the break, you'll see what happens next when Bill Courtney steps on campus. This is Our American Stories. Bill Courtney's story continues after these messages.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of Bill Courtney, who grew up in inner-city Memphis as a white kid and now returns to inner-city Memphis as a football coach at an all-black school called Manassas. Let's return to Bill. I made a significant error midway through my first year and was taught probably one of my three most valuable life lessons by a 17-year-old kid from the hood named Jamie Bobo. Halfway through the season, we were 3-3, three and three, and that's pretty average, but when you've won four games in 10 years, 3-3 three and three ain't bad. And I was getting increasingly frustrated because the whole team, while extraordinarily respectful on the football field, the minute practice or games were over, they were back into the streets engaging in the same kind of destructive behavior. And the whole team was buying into football. Half the team was buying into the important stuff. The other half team was certainly buying football, but not buying the important stuff. So I said, Jamie, what do I got to do to get that half the team to buy in the important stuff like your half the team? And he said, Coach, just keep doing what you're doing kind of dismissively and I said no man I mean real talk talk to me and I could tell he didn't want to and I kind of cornered him I said Jamie what what's going on he said all right you want to know real talk I said yeah he said they're trying to figure out if you're a turkey person or not and I said Jamie what are you talking about and he said coach every Thanksgiving and Christmas people roll into our neighborhood and they gives us gifts and turkeys and hams and we take them because we ain't got none But then they leave and we never see them again. And it kind of makes you wonder if they're doing that because they really care about us or they're doing that to make themselves feel good. And he looked me dead in the eyes and he said, Coach, what the hell are you really doing here, man? And the truth is, I was getting written up in the paper. People were slapping my back, talking about all the nice things I was doing for the poor kids in the hood. And I was digging it. And anytime anybody asked me about Manassas, I was happy to tell them everything I was doing. Meanwhile, these kids were getting called sellouts. You know, what you want to list that white coach for? You know, I had kids doing homework and friends of theirs were calling them chumps. I had kids that had to get beaten out of gangs in order to play football. I had kids sleeping in the tub. And why that's significant is because in the inner city, tubs are old, and they're all made out of cast iron. And the reason you sleep in a tub is if there's a drive-by, you live through the night. You won't get shot in your bed. I had kids doing unbelievable things that I couldn't even fathom my own children having to live through just to be part of one positive thing in their life, which was this football team. And anytime anybody asked me about it, I was happy to tell them all the things I was doing. And... The truth is, those kids saw right through me. So you ask me, how did I get this stuff going? It's the first thing I did was humble myself. The second thing I did is do the other thing that the greatest leaders of our time do, which is they always take in the chin when things go wrong, but they always give credit to the followers when things go right. And when I was asked about Manassas, I started bragging on those kids and quit talking about myself. And as a result, the kids started seeing that my motivation was not for my own exaltation, but it was a simple edification of doing something good for people who desperately needed it. And they started to change because I changed as a leader. And I became committed to that style of leadership. And as a result, 
We went from 19 kids to 25 kids, 30 kids, and then we went to 60 kids and 65 kids, 75 kids, and went from winning four games to winning 18 games. And in, a, in an area where an 18-year-old male is three times more likely to be incarcerated than he is to either have a job or be in college by his 21st birthday, three times more likely to be in jail from 18 to 21 than he is to have a job or be in college. We graduated 32 seniors and 31 went to college. And this success was also because of a little something called love. I can remember Virginia coming in one time and he just was, his face is all crinkled up and he's so angry. And I said, Virginia, you look like you need a hug. And he looked at me and his face turned and he went from this 18-year-old angry guy to like this four-year-old child. His, the look on his face, I'll never forget it. He looked at me and said, a what? And I said, Virginia, I think you need a hug. I think it'll help you. And he goes, you think so? And I said, yeah. I said, want to try it? He said, yeah. And I hugged him. And after the hug, and I squeezed the crap out of him. I could hear him going underneath there. And when I let him go, I said, how's that feel? And he said, doesn't feel any better at all, coach. And I said, well, I guess it didn't work. He said, but I like the hug. I said, good. So, I mean, it kind of started like that. It was more of a, a joke than anything, but I wanted these kids to understand that paternal affection is a positive thing. Yeah, I mean, to try to show kids who have never had a, a father in their home or a father active in their lives, the importance of fatherly love is um, a challenge. And it was a challenge for me to understand when I was coming up and, and trying to say to the kids, guys, it's not your fault. It's your father's fault. He's the grown-up. He's the one that had lack of commitment. All you did was get born and try to grow up. It's not you. But don't let yourself go there later in life because it could be you if you're going to be that kind of father. And one player who especially had an impact on Bill was Chavis Daniels. Chavis Daniels, who came to us as a freshman, and his first five games, he had like 61 tackles as a freshman of varsity football. And I thought this kid's going to be a Division One freak. And then he disappeared. And then I didn't see him again until his junior year. And what I found out is he got pulled over. He was 15. Everybody else in the car was an adult. There was a bunch of guns, a bunch of dope uh, in the trunk. Everybody went to jail. Chavis went to a juvenile detention center for three months. A month in, he beat the ever-loving crap out of a guard. So his three months turned into a year and a half. And when Chavis came out as a junior, he was a much larger, much more aggressive, very angry young man. He caused an enormous amount of problems on my team, but I always thought it was better to discipline him and try to keep him around than it was to kick him off because I knew if we kicked him off the team and he went back to his same lifestyle, he's just going to be another statistic. Now, Chavis is a father, has a job, and most importantly, started the North Memphis Steelers youth mentoring program uh, three years ago, which has 112 boys and girls in it got three football teams with three different ages, 
three cheer squads with three different ages and every single jersey, shirt, everything they wear on the back of it says school first. And he's literally mentoring kids from the same neighborhoods that I coached in Manassas, but he's not reaching them in ninth grade. He's reaching them when they're six years old and he's making a difference in the community. There's a story under every helmet. Um, kids I've coached, there's Chris Madison as a quadriplegic. James King, my, my star tailback, is dead. Got a couple kids that are locked up for life. Uh, it's real, real life, real true story stuff. I didn't go save anybody. But there's also a lot of success stories. And so one thing I would challenge anybody listening to this to think is that if you really are willing when you go over that overpass to turn the rearview mirror and look yourself and decide you are willing to go work in a place where there is all this disenfranchisement and hopelessness and loss, and you're you're willing to go in and actually try to do something, you need to understand there's going to be more losses and successes. But if you humbly submit yourself to societal work that matters, every once in a while success will come along, and it's that one success that fuels your fire, not the nine failures. And that's so well said and born of experience, anyone who's done this kind of work. There are a lot of failures, but my goodness, the successes are worth it. And there's a story under every helmet. And what a beautiful line. When we come back, we'll continue with Bill Courtney's story here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories in the final portion of Bill Courtney's remarkable story. Earlier, Bill had said that he had trouble believing that he could have a father in heaven when he didn't have a father here on earth. But in his senior year of college, Bill returned to church and told us, quote, We're Christians because we need it. We are awful, horrible people who have just recognized that we need this faith and this salvation. Let's go back to Bill on his wife. Lisa. Lisa loves shrimp. And so I was traveling back from a business trip down in Gulfport, and she told me to go down the docks and get some fresh shrimp. I said I didn't have a cooler, and she said, buy one, and hung up. So I went and got a cooler and got some bags of ice, and I went down on the docks to get some fresh shrimp and then boogie my home so she could have her fresh boiled shrimp, which is great. Until pulling up to find that the dock wasn't the most pleasant place to be. It is the stinkiest, foulest-smelling, stagnant, hot water, fish head, gross, and I'm sitting there trying to choke down this rancid air. And then the shrimp boats start coming in. And I'm like, thank goodness, I'm about to get some shrimp, get the hell out of here. I'm already a... An hour behind, I had to go to Target and get this stupid cooler. And I'm sitting there, and the fishermen show up with the shrimp. And when I thought there was nothing more rancid and disgusting than the docks, I started talking to the fishermen themselves. They've got three or four teeth. They've got marble reds rolled up. they got on their wife beater. Deodorant is more of a suggestion than a requirement. 
They've been out there before the sun came up. They're coming in when the suns go down. They've been sweating. They've got sulfur all over them. And I get my shrimp. I hold my nose. I give them my money, and I just get the hell out of Dodge. And I'm about Jackson, Mississippi, when I think, isn't it ironic? Those are the nastiest people on the face of the earth, and that's exactly who Christ surrounded himself with. Fishermen and hookers. And it is just so poignant to me that being Christ-like is getting down into the areas of our society and community that were needed the most, being humble and not telling people that if you don't think like me, you're doomed, but just showing them what a Christian looks like by your actions. I think if the savior of the universe decided those are the people he's going to surround himself with, that's good enough for me. And as they say, behind every successful man, there's an even stronger woman. And this story is no different. Lisa Courtney is one of the strongest people I know. Look, if, if any women are listening to this, try to imagine having a one-year-old, a two-year-old, a three-year-old and being five months pregnant and going through Walmart. Try to imagine having a two, three, four, and five-year-old and getting them dressed all for church or to go anywhere. At the same time I was starting my business, I was also coaching Manassas. And my God, I don't know how she did what she did. I was too young and immature and stupid to realize how hard I was making life on her. And I was too young and stupid and immature to realize the great depth of appreciation I should have had for her selflessness to allow me to start this business and coach football. My wife allowed me to have my cake and eat it too. Some have said that Bill saved the kids at Manassas, but Bill completely rejects this and says that they actually saved him. And Lisa knew he needed that saving, which is why she let him have his cake and eat it too. The kids at Manassas, I, I can give you all the demographics, but it's all the stereotypical demographics. I mean, honestly, 97% of the people that live in the neighborhoods that kids go to Manassas, 97% of them do not own a home. Only 1.3% have a bachelor's degree. Only 55% have a college or GED equivalent. The average median income is under $10,000 annually. It is poverty. It is rife with gangs and crime and poverty and, and anger and frustration and all of it. And the reason I'm saying all this is to see those kids started hearing the fundamental tenets and principles after only a few years of work and start bettering their own lives and start going to college and start, yeah, they saved me. They, they renewed my sense of optimism that we can fix what else is. They renewed my, my belief in humanity. Listen, let's be candid. Everybody at Manassas is black. The kids, everybody, the, the parents, the, the teachers, there's a couple white teachers, but everybody else black, everybody. And I dare say they welcomed me into their reality and their school and their neighborhoods much more gracefully than they would have been welcomed into mine. You see a black could, 
with a hoodie, tatted up, walking down the street in the neighborhoods I live in. People aren't so welcoming of that. Well, that's what my kids were. That's what my players were. But they welcomed me in their neighborhood like I was one of their own. Yeah, man. I mean, they did save me. They showed me so much of what humanity can overcome. So my wife was absolutely right. I did need them. And it seems that Lisa was right about another thing. As Bill recalls growing up without a father and how he's still not quite over it. My wife will tell you I'm not. I like to think I am, but I will tell you the worst day of my life is Father's Day. My own daughter, I just dropped her off at Philly this past weekend. She got a new job in Philly. And after I left, the next day I called her just to check on her, being a dad. And uh, she's got a very close friend whose father is an alcoholic. And her very close friend is doing really, really well. Got a good job, graduated. She's beautiful, beautiful person, inside and out. And she was on the phone with Molly bawling because here she is, graduated, done well, hadn't gotten in trouble in school, just a really good girl. And she had not in seven years heard her dad say, I'm proud of you. And she was just bawling to Molly. And Molly was trying to be a friend and told her, but what Molly told me on the phone was, Dad, I actually used some of the things you've told us. And I explained to her that um, the truth is she may never get over that hurt. And I said, Molly, what are you talking about? And she goes, come on, Dad. She said, every Father's Day, you're always a grouch. And I mean, I, I don't really guess I even realized that. Um, but I'm 50 years old, and um, I don't guess I'll ever fully get over it, but I can at least cognitively understand it and use it as fuel to just not be that guy um, and to be the best father I can for my own children. I will tell you, when we were at, this is an emotional one for me, when we were at dinner, uh, we always had dinner together, the kids and I. We, Lisa and, and I, whether it was 7 o'clock or 10 o'clock at night, we were going to sit down with our kids and have supper. And we were eating supper, and it was the Wednesday before my last, Wednesday before the playoff game of my last season. I had told nobody at Manassas that I was leaving, but I'd made my mind up at the beginning of the season that that was my last year because – I'd missed too much of my kid's life, and it was after seven years, I had put too much of a burden on my family to to do all that I'd been doing. And we were at dinner, and I told the family, I said, listen, I really want you to come to the first playoff game, because if we lose, that's it. We're done. We're out, and that'll be it for me at Manassas. And they said, well, you're going back next year. I said, no, that's something I want to tell you I'm not. And Will started crying. He was eight, maybe, and he started crying. And I said, son, what's wrong? And he said, daddy, you can't quit. And I said, why? And he said, because they need you more than we do. Which sealed it for me 
that leaving Manassas was the absolute right thing at that time. I and my family and my wife put seven years into that place and those kids. But when your own children start thinking that other kids need you worse than they do, it's time. And you've been listening to Bill Courtney and what a story indeed. And we're tearing up here in the studio just listening to it. What a guy, what a life lived, and what a tough decision to have to make, having put so much into a job and so much into a neighborhood, but realizing, thanks to his own eight-year-old, that he needs to be home for his own kids and how to balance that out and how to do the right thing, make sure he's there for his family so he can then be again there for those extended family members when he's done with his. And there are so many stories like this across this great country. We'd love to hear stories from you in your neighborhood. The Bill Courtney's of this country, giving of themselves, great hearts. And by the way, the fatherlessness story, boy, does that stick at 50 years old. Dad, you're always grouchy on Father's Day. And it just stays with you, folks. And fatherlessness, again, is one of the big subjects in this country we're not afraid to get into and to have people share their stories, because, boy, if we can end just one chain in that cycle and have that fatherlessness boy be a father to his son and to his daughter, we've changed the world. Bill Courtney's story, here on Our American Stories.